I'm in my mid-30s and I had this guy say to me only last week in Canberra and he says, you're 36 and you've got to meet a guy and if you want to have a child, you're fucked. And I was like, wow, classic male in ag, this is awesome. It's not like the Sydney testing clinics and there's, you know, the nice rooms with the magazines, it's just a pathology lab. So I never expected to be, well, I didn't speed, but I went pretty close to it down a national highway with a sperm sample shoved down my sports bra. You're listening to Ducks on the Pond, brought to you by the Rural Podcasting Co. I'm Kirsten Diprose and Jackie Elliott is back too. Jackie, it's so nice to have you back. Yes, I'm back for the official start of season five of Ducks on the Pond. And I'm so glad you are here. And honestly, this first episode contains two of the funniest conversations I think I've ever heard on this podcast. Well, fertility, particularly for rural women, is not usually a very funny topic because if you're talking about it, it's usually because something isn't going right. Yep. And in this episode, we'll hear how two rural women managed two very different fertility challenges in the bush, where, of course, services are generally multiple hours away. So, Kirsten, you spoke to Jennifer McCutcheon, an ABC reporter based in Dubbo, New South Wales, who, as you heard, had to race her partner's sperm down the highway as part of their fertility journey. Quite literally. And Jackie, you spoke to Dimity Smith, the founder of Grow Events Group based in Tamworth, about her decision to freeze her eggs and what's involved in that whole process. You'll laugh, but there's also some harrowing and heartwarming stories that really typify the ups and downs of fertility in the country. Let's start with Dimity. So I'm Dimity Smith and I'm the founder of Grow Events Group, a rural and regional event management, event marketing and events communications agency. I'm based in Tamworth, New South Wales, but hail from Scone in the Upper Hunter in New South Wales. My parents and family are dairy farmers. I'm also a registered but non-practicing psychologist. So I'm not practicing at the moment, but was a psychologist for 10 years before I moved across into the space of events, comms and marketing. And yes, I am someone who has tried to take some control back in the, what I heard referred to a few years ago as the panic years in, in, yeah, freezing my eggs. So I've done two rounds over the past 18 months and yeah, happy to share that journey today. Thank you so much, Jim. I really look up to you as someone who has excellent career and runs an incredible business for Grow Events to take control back. Like, how did you even start? As my dad walks into the kitchen in the background. Hi, Dad. (laughs) Hi, Dad. (laughs) I'll tell you a funny story about dads later. Um, So, no. He's aware of this discussion. (laughs) He he had me yesterday. I was crying at the kitchen table talking about this. So, he's very across what's going on. (laughs) All right. I'll let you lead on a little secret. In my last six months, mum's had to help me do needles for some fertility treatment because I just can't handle it. Anyway, mum went away for one weekend. And so who was the other option? It was my dad. Dad. (laughs) Yeah. I just remember when I was, and I'm jumping ahead the story here, but I just remember I was at the end, like close to the end of the fertility treatment for the egg freezing. And I just remember one day just like, crying at the back door and I was like I'm sorry dad I'm not really emotional it's just my hormones and he's like holy Jesus (laughs) (laughs) what do I do panic mode I know he just looked at me and he was like whoa (laughs) 
Oh, goodness. And that's the thing. I guess that's part of the big story, isn't it? About when you are uh, going through this journey, you need an excellent support team. So, Dim, I guess going back on to what was your decision to go through with the collection process, but also who was around to support you? Yeah, so it was about two and a half years ago now, and I had just come out of a relationship. And I don't want to say unexpected expectedly but it, it the terms of which that it sort of finished up weren't what I had expected and even sort of in that relationship process my my mum had sort of said to me look things aren't kind of heading where you thought they were and and you're 33 now do you think you should freeze your eggs and I guess at the time I thought, oh, this is good, you know, having family supportive of this and being like, okay, well, let's just take the bull by the horns here and try and tackle this scenario. And it was only, it was, gosh, around the time the first lockdown of COVID. So I couldn't really get to Sydney. It was back and forth and I could get bloods done to kind of have the initial kind of phase worked out, but I couldn't really get down there and then I couldn't get in to get scans in Tamworth and anyway, it was a whole sort of complicated scenario being rural as I'm sure that you're aware of. Anyway, but I initially had the conversations. I went through Monash IVF in Sydney and went through a doctor there and the nurse nursing team, they were all fantastic. And that first initial process was really about getting the background. So getting bloods, getting scans, checking that everything is fine, which thankfully for me it was. And then they start to put together a plan. But again, my challenge was that yeah, it was during COVID. And so trying to navigate around like lockdowns were happening. So I couldn't get in and get scans done at certain times. And even at one point I went to go and get bloods done and I got COVID. And I think I was like just about to start. So I missed that round. So I had to wait for another round. So yeah, it was it was complicated to start with, but it was something that I knew I really, really wanted to do being in my early 30s. I have always wanted to be a mother. I've always kind of had that maternal vibe in me and the thought of not having that opportunity really was worrying and I didn't want to leave anything to chance. So that was something that I really was really important to me to do and my parents know how much I want to have a child and so they were like okay we'll, we'll do whatever we've got to do to support you and so I've done two rounds so I did my first round in May in 2022 and then I did another round in January this year. Tell me more about these rounds because I guess as someone who hasn't been through that process like what's involved and was yours probably a typical kind of scenario? No. So this is the interesting thing. So going into the first round, I mean, I've always been someone who's a bit of a curvier girl on the heavier side and my health was a factor that I'd always known. Like I'm very fit, you know, I love sport. I play a lot of sport, go to the gym, regularly having PTs, probably love food a little bit too much, but I, I knew that that may play into things. But anyway, so I had my first round and within the first little while, they sort of indicate, so you you sort of have your first bloods and they give you a baseline. And then they sort of say to you, okay, when you're at a certain point after you've had your period, your hormones will reach a certain level, that's baseline. Then you start injections. And Mine was a little slow, which they weren't expecting based on prior results. 
So they indicated to me that I needed to wait a few more days. And then I started the injections. And look, as someone who like doesn't love needles, I feel like I'm a gun with needles now. So I did all my own injections. And so for the first, and it's a little while ago now, that was about 18 months ago, but for the first lot, I was doing the injections and then they were like, okay, this is really slowly creeping up. This is really strange. Like you're not getting the response we would want you to. So they said, we need to up the dose. So then I had the dose increase and during this time it was really stressful. Like I was in the middle of one of my biggest events of the year, which is UNE Open Day. So I do that for the University of New England each year. And then I was sort of trying to juggle that with knowing I had to go and get scans, trying to fit that in in Armidale when I'm normally in Tamworth, when normally most people get their scans in Sydney with Monash IVF. So it was really like quite an intense time of being like waiting for the call. So you do your bloods in the morning and then at about one o'clock in the afternoon, you get a call from Monash IVF and they'll say, you're either ready to go for your next dose or no hold on the current dose or yes, we need you to come in for a scan tomorrow. So it's, it's really kind of one of these things where you need to be completely focused and present in that time. And I was really stressed. Like I had a lot going on work-wise, but I mean, that's life. You can't really change those things sometimes. Anyway, so again, things were slowly increasing. They weren't increasing at the pace they were supposed to where your hormones like doubling every day and mine just weren't. So I had to have this increase in dose and I ended up having to get in and have all these extra scans. And what they do is they're looking at the size of your follicles. So the bigger kind of follicles they get, then I think if they go over 17 millimeters, they're too big. And if they're too like smaller than 11 millimeters, they're not going to be suitable. And basically they need to be this sweet spot around this 16 millimeters in size to enable them to retrieve the eggs and have them be of a mature quality that can be then frozen. So then I ended up going in on the morning of my favorite day of the year, which is scone cup. And I remember just being at scone cup and feeling like an absolute balloon because by this stage, my follicles had got bigger and you just kind of get a bloated tummy. And I've always had a tummy, so it didn't really bother me. Some people get really worked up about it. And I didn't have really bad headaches. I didn't have really bad side effects. I like got the bloated tummy, but I'm like, meh, that's standard. I probably shouldn't eat gluten, but look, it is what it is. So I was really grateful. Like I didn't have really bad side effects. Like I kind of rolled with the hormones and I got a bit emotional, but I really didn't kind of worry too much. The the main thing that was stressing me out was really about going under anesthetic. Years ago, I'd had this bad experience. And so I was really scared of whacking my head again. But anyway, that's, that's probably the only thing that I was really worried about. Anyway, so then on the day of Scone Cup, I go in and get a scan. They're like, no, you're not ready yet. And this was on a Friday afternoon. They're like, we're going to need you on Monday. But then they changed their mind. They didn't want me on Monday anyway. So it was just this up and down and we're not sure and whatever. I guess there are some people that get it right first go and it works well, not a drama. They've got access to be able to get scans and bloods straight away. They're absolutely fine and it's not a drama. But then for other people that are A, rural, regional or may need to look at what's going on in their cycle a little bit more or they might not be a stereotypical kind of perfect build up to the to the retrieval, that 
that is stressful. So anyway, so I ended up going in before I went in, they scanned and they were like, oh my God, this is great. looks like we've got about 15 follicles in there, which is what my number was. Like I was hoping for around about 10 to 15 eggs. And they were like, yep, everything looks great. So on the last night, about 12 hours before I had the um, trigger shot, the injection, which basically shuts everything down and makes sure that your eggies are ready to be collected. So went in for the procedure at six o'clock the next morning. It was all good. Everything was fine. I came out and they said, we only got five. No, sorry, four. And I was like, what? Like, what what happened? Yeah, that's right. What you know, we've been what went, went wrong? Thing for yes. over two weeks. Yeah, like all this time, my scans were showing they're great, they're perfect in size. Like, what's what's going on here? And uh, anyway, and then I got the phone call a few hours later because what they do is they then go into the the scientists to look at the eggs and the the embryologists and whatever and they look at your eggs and then they determine the level of quality and then whether you can have them frozen away and they said there's only three that are suitable and I was just gutted like that's you know it cost me ten thousand dollars for that plus I think an extra like I've got private health, so I was able to claim a fair bit of it. But, you know, the actual process itself, I think, yeah, it was about $10,000 by the time it was all finished. And you get 5000 back from Medicare. So, you know, like it was, yeah, probably $5,000, but, you know, you still got to outlay the 10000 Anyway, so, yeah, so I was devastated. I, like and I don't just, blame you, Jim. Personally, I mean, like I'm definitely an oversharer and as I'm looking to this next step at IVF with my husband, even over the last six months, we've spent a couple of thousand dollars just to, for fertility, like treatment and inductions and that kind of thing. Like, yes, it's not about the money, but it does rely heavily on, hey, like, you know, I've outlaid this and I've gone through all this trouble and I've followed the process. Yeah, and I think too, like some people come out and they only get one and they're thrilled with that. And that I totally get why, but I think it was the fact that when I was having all my scans done, they were like, yeah, we probably think 15, 16, like you've got some, I remember the lady saying, you have some juicy eggs in here, juicy follicles. And follicles are what holds the eggs. So you don't know that there's going to be an egg in each of the follicles, but it's kind of the biggest indicator at the time other than your bloods as well but yeah and so when I came out and and you kind of do the 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 debrief after and and they said look we've looked at everything all your hormones were right you know everything we're thinking is this and they said that one of the things that we think it could be is maybe your weight and your health and I just was like Jesus Christ so, you know, and that hurts too, because I'm like, you know, part of it, I think is genetic makeup. Part of it is lifestyle. There's, you know, but I actually think probably the biggest thing and the biggest difference between session one of retrieval to session two is stress. And I will tell you about my second retrieval, completely different experience. So, For the second retrieval, I'd lost a little bit of weight, which helped things, but I focused purely on my stress levels. I took a solid four weeks off over Christmas. 
I had time with my family and I was just like beach, fun, family, relax. And my retrieval wasn't until February 3rd. So I just tried to just keep myself as cool as a cucumber. So I made sure that I had that rest time, downtime, limited work time. I had lots of time with my nephews, lots of time doing the things that I love, like at the beach, swimming, resting, walking. And so when it came time in January to do the second retrieval, they started me on a higher dose. So that kind of, they kicked me off from a higher level up because they knew they would need to boost me. I was still slow at kicking off. So that was still the same, but it was when we were doing the scans and things, they were a lot more conservative second time around. And so what they did was they were, you know, scanning me, but I went to Sydney. So I stayed with my best friend in Sydney for that 10 day period beforehand, because I wanted to not be stressed about getting scans, bloods, having to be back and forth. And you kind of to know how the system works a bit better for your second time round, So it's not as stressful, but things like knowing where I can get my bloods early in the morning and it's not a stress where I can get in with them. They do scans at their site, at their center at Monash IVF in the city. And then I went home for a few days, then came back again and they were like, yep, things look good. You know, definitely not the same as the previous time where they were like, Ooh, juicy follicles. But I definitely could still see like one of them was well and truly gone. Like it was 26 millimeters or something. And then there's others that are like 15. And so they're like, we think we might be able to get a few, like I can see four or five maybe. And I, I had kind of prepped myself that I just thought if I get three or four, I'll be really happy. Yeah. Because then that gives you like six at the end. Exactly. Yeah. And I thought I'm not going to do more than two rounds. Like I just want to do two rounds. That's it. Cause that was another $10,000 that I had to come up with. And my parents helped me with the first round, but the second round I paid for myself. And I just thought, look, I'll do a second round and whatever. Anyway, I went in, I had this absolutely so handsome gay guy who was my anesthetist. And I was like, this is a good sign already. He's a babe. But no, he was so fun. And he was like, don't worry, babe, I'll look after you if you're good. And I was like, you are the coolest anesthetist I've ever met. Anyway, so yeah, so then I went under, was very relaxed, like even just the going under for anesthetic, like I wasn't panicked about it because I had a good experience last time. It's only a twilight. So you're not going under full. You're just really like out. You don't hear, can't feel anything, can't remember anything. It's like, like having a really nice sleep anyway. And then I came out and they came over and told me and I said, Oh, how many did I get? And they said, you got 10. And I just started crying. (laughs) And I remember saying, and you can bleep beep this bit out, but I saw the anesthetist and I go, I fucking love you. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was like, go girl. And so I, yeah, I had this just overwhelming gratitude and probably part of that was hormones, but I just cried because I was just so happy. And anyway, so then my mum was there to pick me up and I was still a bit out of it, like snoozing in the car on the way home because Scone's about three and a half hours and I was coming home. And um, like, again, like I'm so grateful I didn't have really bad side effects. Like I think my body quite liked the hormones. So, you know, I didn't have anything too horrendous side effects wise. Like I was pretty lucky. And then I get the phone call on the way home and, and you kind of like, okay, how many did I get? Like, because last time only a few were suitable and anyway, and she said, I've got good news. All 10 are perfect. 
And I was like, oh my God. So I just, again, cried again. And I just am like, oh my God, one of these might be one of my babies. Like I'm just so happy. Yeah. And so I just, I was in the car with mum and I just was just so, so happy. Yeah. It's probably a bit overwhelming, Dim. And um, I guess now you've got, you know, 13. 13. 13. doesn't. Lucky, the lucky 13 sitting there waiting, waiting for the next step I guess and whether you're ready to share that or what you know yeah yeah I'll share I'll share where it's at yeah where you're up to and you know I guess what your plans are and I I don't know did you ever when you did you have that relief and go I can just put this you know yes they can literally be put aside now ready for when I'm ready yeah absolutely and I think that's the thing like I I think I've had this panic really about okay, you know, I'm in my mid-30s and I had this guy say to me only last week in Canberra, and again, you'll have to beep out this because it has swearing in it, and he says, you're 36 and you've got to meet a guy and if you want to have a child, you're fucked. And I was like, wow, classic male in ag, this is awesome. And, yeah, he just goes, you're you're fucked. And I was like, wow, that's, like, seriously hurtful but also that's really sad that that's the perspective of people. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people who have met people in their late 30s and they know what they want and they meet the right person or they may not meet the right person and choose to do it alone. I have one of my best friends in the world has done it on her own and has a beautiful five-year-old boy who is absolutely the light of her life and I love the fact that I have that option you know and I think that's probably and I think you know when I said to him the other night I said well I've frozen my eggs and he's like oh well that's smart and I was like yeah like I'm I'm not a silly girl and even if you did meet that someone now you may still need your eggs exactly like you may exactly naturally it may not happen and I think just I think that's probably a take-home in itself is just because you're collecting these eggs whether you need them down the track or not they're still there well a lot of my family members actually have the gene for Huntington's disease so my mum is one of 10 and five of her siblings have Huntington's disease and thanks to IVF and egg collection my cousins have been able to conceive through IVF with that gene removed. Yeah. So, you know, this is just the most remarkable thing to, you know, watch some of my family members go through this horrendous disease, but now know that that's not going on to the next generation of our family is pretty fantastic. But I think, yeah, just having this process done and knowing that they're there for if I need them or I may not, you know, and I've even said, if anything happens to me, I want them donated to science because I think that that's going to help people for future generations. But I even, yeah, yesterday sat at this very kitchen table. I'm at mum and dad's this week and, you know, out with dad yesterday, checking irrigators and checking calves and cows calving last night and going checking on them. And, you know, it's like, it's so good being home, but yeah, that's what we talked about. Like that, you know, I have these comments like from that guy last week and I kind of go, shit, like, should I just even give up? Should I just stop trying to meet someone? And, you know, I think it's that really hard thing of like you kind of get to this point, I'm 36 now, where you kind of, I'm, I'm not ready to have a child on my own, but I'm not ready to give up on meeting someone either. 
So I'm kind of having to hold the two and sit with that. You know, I'm at a point where I love what I'm doing for my work. Like I love doing Grow. I love the team that I have. You know, for years I did psychology and I just hated it every day. Like dad was talking to me about it yesterday and I just burst into tears and my mum had been having it up and she walked out and she's like, oh God, what's happened? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, dad and I just talked about the meaning of life. And, you know, he's just sort of said to me, he said, we'll support you, like whatever you want to do. And it's one of those things that I am not sure there'll be regrets either way in life. Like if I had a child versus if I had not, but I'm still really keen to explore the opportunity maybe to have a child on my own if I didn't meet someone, but I'm not in a rush to make that decision. I want it to be right. And, you know, all other indicators of fertility are good for me. And, you know, I think setting myself up with grow, you know, that's the focus at the moment is building grow to a point where I can step out and have a good four to six months being able to be on maternity leave and then come back in a part-time capacity. Like that's definitely part of my plan with Grow and working that through. So, yeah, so there's a few variables still up in the air, but I haven't quite made the decision. I know that, yeah, I definitely know I'm not ready to have a baby on my own, but I also know I'm not ready to give up meeting the right person to do that with, hopefully, fingers crossed. Thank you to Dimity Smith for sharing her story so candidly. Yeah, and freezing your eggs isn't so uncommon these days. Neither is having a baby on your own through IVF, which I think is great. It really turns that whole, oh, you're 36, you better go find a man now thing on its head. And of course, even if you do have a man, there's still no guarantee that it all works smoothly, like for our next guest, Jen McCutcheon. Yes, our sperm highway speedster. Do you think she'll be happy with that title? <laughs> yeah, she's a journo. She'll, she knows the game. That's how her newspaper headline would read. I think she'd actually appreciate it. Well, if you say so, let's meet Jen McCutcheon. So I live in Gilgandra. I live about 20 k's west towards Warren. It's a town of about three and a half thousand people, a lot of mixed enterprise farming, sheep, cattle, wheat, canola, that kind of thing. And my husband, he's a part-time teacher, part-time farmer. So slowly making the transition away from teaching to farming. You know, since I've been out here, um, we've had a wild five years, but it it would be great to get a normal year in farming. Oh, the naivety. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Uh, I've only been on the land for 10 years, but it's hard to find a normal year sometimes. In the five years since I've been here, I arrived in 2018 and in the middle of the dust storms, the daily haboobs we had rolling through. Then we rolled into the pandemic and a mouse plague and then floods. So, you know, Warren's only about 50 k's from our farm, but the highway was cut for months. It's been quite quite the initiation and, you know, I watch Farmer Wants a Wife now and and I lol because I kind of think, you know, oh, little do they know. <laughs> little do they know what life on the land actually requires. <laughs> yeah, I know. They always get them chasing a sheep and then laughing because no one knows how to chase a sheep if you've never done it before. But it's, yeah, it's a bit more involved, isn't there? And you've seen a lot in five years. That's astounding. It's scary how quickly it can turn. And thankfully, I haven't had a mouse in my house, but because we renovated as well in the middle of the mouse plague, which was fun. You never had um, a mouse in your house. Is that what you Oh, saying? no, this time, no, just last, no, 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 no. Um, the record while the mouse plague was on, because I don't like baiting because I can't 
stand the smell. It was 32 one night. I emptied out of traps. But no, there's just a little hint of mice coming back. And thankfully, I haven't seen any inside the house yet. But, you know, some of my friends have, have started having mice come back. And I'm like, I think I can deal with anything but, but mice in my house again. <laughs> I'd like to never see a mouse in my house ever again. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. So tell me about where you grew up and what you were thinking about as you were growing up, because you probably didn't think you'd be on a farm. No. So I grew up in Bathurst. I was actually born in Broken Hill and then my parents moved back to Bathurst. I was a townie, as people would describe. So I did my schooling there and then I went to Charles Sturt University. I had dreams of becoming a physiotherapist for the Wallabies, but quickly realized the path to a physio role isn't direct to an elite sporting team. So I turned away from that and the Olympics were on in Sydney when I was in year 10, which is obviously that sort of time when you know you're looking at careers and that and so the head of comms at Charles Sturt University it it has a world-renowned journalism degree there he came to our school and he said we're introducing a sports journalism degree and I was like this is the career path for me and I then applied to be a, a cadet at the ABC and somehow found my way getting through that process and was selected as one of seven cadets I think in my year and I was sent to Canberra. So I actually was a sport reporter for 11 years. And then just on a weekend away, I met my now husband. But I did always have that after being in Sydney for eight years. I kind of, you know, growing up, you want to get away. You want to get to the big smoke. You want to leave the small town. And and I mean, Bathurst isn't a small town compared to sort of where I live now and communities around me. But, you know, it was, oh, no, we want to, we want to get out. And it's funny how the tables turn as you get a bit older and and I was in my early 30s and I was still single and I, and I was really drawn back to the country and my mum and dad have a house in Mudgee because dad used to work there and they've kept their little house and I thought, sort of thought, oh, I love Mudgee. So I took long service leave and, and based myself out there for a couple of months and, you know, you've got to be careful what you ask the universe for, because I said, I'd love to meet a man in Mudgee. And, and I met my man in Mudgee, but he wasn't from Mudgee. So <laughs> he he was from two hours further west, but uh, wouldn't have life any other way. And, and five years on, yes, I found myself now on the land. And mum and I joke, mum's always like, oh, I always thought I'd be pushing a pram down the streets of Double Bay, not Dubbo. But I did apply for Farmer Wants a Wife when I was 25, but the ABC wouldn't allow us to do work. You couldn't work for our commercial channel, not that I made it through, but it is quite funny that 13 years ago I, I applied for one of the first seasons and then I've actually I've fulfilled that dream in my own way. That's brilliant. You have. You've done it without having to go on the show and potentially humiliate yourself. Like I might, <laughs> anyone who goes on those shows, I just... Like having my heart broken on national TV sounds like the most terrifying, awful experience. So anyone who's brave enough to do it, hats off to them. Um, tell me about your career though. Is it hard to maintain your journalism career? Well, I'm really lucky, you know, working for the ABC. I came through at a time when the regions were really being pumped up. I got to be the network sports reporter for almost 10 years. You know, I've covered NRL Grand Finals. I witnessed Winx's great wins. I was there when Black Caviar retired. I I never got to cover an Olympics, but who knows? I, I might still do it. So I kind of had this amazing, you know, glitzy, glamorous career, but that longing to 
have a family and live that simpler life was was always there for me. So when I met Andrew, my husband, and I knew he was out here, I was sort of spending a lot of time coming out here and I, I just started looking up for a couple of stories and, and I found some really cool sports stories out in the western region of New South Wales. And so I, I made a connection with the local chief of staff in Dubbo and then, yeah, I really liked it and a permanent job came up here. So I'd, I'd been here for a couple of months and Andrew and I had been together for about a year and I, I went, let's do this. And I, and I guess that's one thing I can always say with him was from the beginning when I met him, he was always very clear about what the future held for him. He was like, I'm fourth generation farmer. My children will be fifth generation. And, you know, this is my legacy and I, and I want to, you know, live here for the rest of my life. So if that's something that, you know, you're prepared to, to come, come to the party on, then, you know, this will work. So you got the career, you got the farmer, then of course, the next progression of life, you know, <laughs> if you're doing the standard life, is having kids. And how did that go for you? That's one thing that perhaps didn't come so easily. Yeah, and throw in a wedding that happened on the eve of the pandemic lockdown, the first lockdown. We were meant to get married on the 4th of April 2020. And I distinctly remember the night Scott Morrison came on TV and said, from to midnight tomorrow night, weddings will be five people. And I was just hysterical. I was 35. I consider marriage very important as well, but my husband's family is is very quite religious, so marriage is very important to them. So I was like, we have to get married because, you know, we want to start trying for a family. So we ended up, you know, I'd been planning a wedding in 12 months and I planned a wedding in 12 hours and we got married the afternoon before the very, very first lockdown. And it was weird. We got married in the wool shed with our immediate family and then we went into lockdown for sort of three months. It was a very interesting, a very welcome interesting. married life. Welcome Boom. to married life. Bindi Irwin did the same thing, so I wasn't alone. And I found myself being 35 and actually not even knowing how to have a baby, if that makes sense. I guess you just grow up and, you know, your PE teacher from year 10s in the back of your mind going, don't even look at boys, you know, you'll get pregnant. The first month went by and the second month went by and our story is, by no means complicated compared to a lot of people. And we have been very blessed and, and are very lucky with how our journey turned out. But it really got me thinking that somehow I was, yeah, I was in my mid-30s and, and I didn't even know how, how a baby is made. I mean, we know how babies made, but, you know, I didn't know that women have four cycles within a cycle and that there's peak times and, you know, in the Hollywood movies, it's always like, oh, I'm ovulating, let's make a baby. But actually meant to make a baby before you ovulate kind of thing. And so sort of six, six months went by and uh, nothing had happened. And being a very type A personality, you know, I'm not a champion golfer or I'm not a great swimmer or runner or anything, but most things you sort of expect you can kind of have a crack at and you can pull off and this just wasn't working. And so I was like, well, try to control what you can control. So I'd after 35, they suggest if you've been trying for six months that you should go start getting some tests done. And so that's kind of where our journey began and where I sort of found some of the roadblocks that living rurally can have. Yeah. So tell me about that experience. You obviously had to go to the GP. Is that where you start? And and, and then where do you go from there? 
Yeah, so I was lucky that I already was on the books of a gynecologist from some health issues I'd had, you know, previously in Sydney. So I I went to Sydney, which is obviously, you know, a 12-hour return trip. And thankfully, a lot of the pre-testing out here you can have done in Dubbo. Like Dubbo is a big enough centre to be able to have your bloods done and and all those initial things. So I was then able to, to book in for them. But one of the funniest stories of our journey sort of through the testing part was that you can deliver a sperm sample to Dubbo, but it's not like the Sydney testing clinics and that when men need a count that you can just go. There's, you know, the nice rooms with the magazines, all that kind of stuff. There's no way to do it. It's just a pathology lab and you just basically have to turn up with it. So I never expected to be, well, I didn't speed, but I went pretty close to it down a national highway with a sperm sample shoved down my sports bra. But basically we were told that, you know, to have this count done, you needed to have it at the local pathology lab in Dubbo under an hour, warm, and, you know, you you basically just had to come in and drop it off and you could only drop it off between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. So when you think about your options, you know, there's sort of a public toilet around the corner or, you know, pulling over at a rest stop. So we were like, well, maybe this is something we can pull off from home. So, yeah, it was kind of like our own version of the amazing race. Um, race, race. <laughs> I think I got it there in like 56 minutes and I'd rung ahead and I said, this is coming in. Everything was okay. But I guess that just shows, you know, it, it's quite ridiculous. And I was listening to a podcast of Hamish Blake's around the time where he described he lived across the road from a pathology lab. So he chose to, you know, do his count at home and then, but he described walking across this major road with it tucked under his armpit. And if he got hit by a car, what would the police do when they arrive? And I was did the same. I was like, what if I get pulled over and I've got this, you know, specimen jar shoved down my sports bra? I'm trying to do the maths, 85 Ks in under an hour. <laughs> I reckon there might have been a bit of lead foot going on there. I, I um, promise, I promise I got there safely. I tell you what, I live 70 Ks from my biggest town and I can do it in 50 minutes. So it's it's like borderline, it's knife edge if you can do it. That's crazy. It was, it was. And I was very lucky. There's like two traffic lights and I did get the green. So I was like, oh, phew, they saved me like a couple of minutes. But yeah, I was literally sitting in the car with the egg and just, it was, yeah was one of the funniest, most awkward, random things. But this is the thing with, you know, conception journeys. The more we talk about it, I guess, the more we normalize it. I'd sort of tell it as a bit of a pub story. And my husband was a bit like, oh, you shouldn't say anything at the start. But, you know, now he's happy to talk about it as well. Because I think it did, you know, one of our really good friends was like, oh, yeah, we had to do that. And we we went to the rest area on the way to town. And Oh, yeah, never go to this a certain takeaway restaurant around the corner from the pathology lab because that's where everyone goes to get their get their <laughs> counts in the jar. And so it's like and and it just opened up this conversation, and it really made you feel not alone. and And, like I said, you know, by no means is our story a complex story, but it's just these things that people, you know, i I have a friend who I was trying to recommend somewhere for them to go in Sydney to see about an IVF, you know, their IVF journey. And I asked another friend of mine who'd been there and they were like, oh, we'll go to this place because it's got it's got the best movies and the best magazines. <laughs> you know, it's, 
it's like the romance of creating a baby in the morning oh man and the romance goes right out the window and I was always one of those people that were like oh I won't track my cycle I won't do this I won't do that but but you really have no other choice and I guess yeah that is the thing the more people that talk about it and I know around the time we were trying to get pregnant Sylvia Jeffries and Jane Azapati who were media colleagues of mine in Sydney they'd both spoken out about their conception journeys and you know that that they'd gone through IVF and it sort of yeah made you realize you're not alone and I think that's the biggest thing that you kind of sometimes feel like what's wrong with me and and you're a bit ashamed but I think the more people talk about it and and it's great and there's and so many people are starting to share journeys you know Anne Hathaway a Hollywood superstar talked about her she called it conception hell and that kind of thing because you do go down a dark path and and the longer it takes the more stressful it does become and then people are like oh just take a holiday and you know we were trying to fall pregnant in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> it's like we just can't, the world shut at the moment and well, you had nothing yeah. better to do at least you know <laughs> no well there are a lot. I think the the month my daughter was born was the busiest month Dubbo Base Hospital has ever had in, in the history of of babies being delivered at the new hospital but it's yeah it did and and it's been really interesting because I did and I found I wrote this letter to myself and and it's quite funny and and I found it recently and yeah I guess when you're in it you kind of don't realize you know just the impact it's having on you you know I have a lot of friends who who are in similar situations and and have had to go down that IVF journey and there is extra logistics people in the regions have to face you know to get to an IVF clinic is at least four hours you can go to Orange or Newcastle or then you have more options in Sydney fuel's expensive at the moment at least with telehealth a lot of initial inquiries can be done via telehealth and that kind of thing but you're away from your family you're going through these incredibly raw experiences and and yeah it was just interesting during my study that I found that Deakin University have just released this report called Going the Distance, Ethics of Space and Location in Accessing Reproductive Services in Australia. And it's actually the first time they've ever studied what couples in the regions go through to have a baby because it's exactly that. Unfortunately, making babies is is a money-making venture. So IVF clinics aren't going to set up in Broken Hill and you know, Warren or Narromine or something because they're not going to have the clientele and, and the people going through there as they would in Sydney. So there's just all those things couples in the country have to consider. Meals, fuel, accommodation, leave from work, childcare. It, it comes down to almost what is a medical right, you know, like we yeah. have, to have certain standards of hospitals and let's face it, how regional hospitals don't always meet them, unfortunately, but there is a certain level of care that you've got to meet. Is having a baby, if you can't do it the natural way, is that a right that you have that should be available to you in regional centres? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's some grants you can get at the moment for pre-IVF testing and IVF screening, but that's statewide. So people in the city have access to that as well. So I, I really think that's, you know, something that really needs to be looked at. And then when it comes to having a baby, you know, Dubbo is the furthest west you can have a baby in New South Wales. And in fact, I was at the obstetrician's office the other day, and I don't know if this is exactly right, but there were two girls there who were from west of Cobar who'd actually come in and 
were paying for three three weeks accommodation in Dubbo because that's as far west as you can have a baby. And I said, could you go to Broken Hill? And they said, no, you can't have a baby in Broken Hill anymore. So basically from Dubbo to Adelaide, you can't have a baby. And and that's, you know, there's another layer of cost and everything on top. I know when we had our baby, we only live an hour away, but we booked three nights accommodation in Dubbo just so my husband didn't have to drive back to the farm late at night. I'd hazard a guess that Broken Hill does deliver babies, maybe that they're not sort of booked in. Yes, they can They can all definitely do an emergency delivery. And I know we've had stories that we've run here in ABC Dubbo of, of babies, you know, the Royal Flying Doctors Service has gone out to stations and and delivered babies midair and, and that kind of thing. But even in, you know, Parks and Forbes, they had midwifery services cut and baby services cut. But I do think addressing, you know, issues around access to fertility services and maternity services in the bush is something that that really should be looked at because like you said, we have just as much right to to have a baby when and how we want it as as people who live around the corner from Westmead or Royal Melbourne. You know, I'll be honest, I went into labour in the end and I'm I'm not afraid to talk about it, but I'd booked in for an elective caesarean because we lived an hour from hospital. And I tried, you know, you try to control the uncontrollable. <laughs> Babies still have a way of, of doing their own thing. And, and thankfully, we were able to get to hospital. But I did have a lot of anxiety around my birth because we did live just that little bit further from help. So it's it's all turned out well in the end. You've got a little a baby or a toddler now? We have a little girl called Evie. She's 21 months and it's a great age but a busy age. So yes, thankfully we are after all our testing and everything, I was able to go on some medication to promote ovulation and we were able to fall pregnant on that. So that was kind of a precursor to going down the IVF path. So like I said, you know, there's a lot of people who are going through, you know, some heavy journeys and we were quite blessed that we were able to fall pregnant like we did with just a little bit of a little bit of science. But yeah, she's she's going really well. And we're actually on our way to having our second baby, which was a bit of a surprise after everything we went through first go. But yes, an, another beautiful blessing. Like I said, it, it just made me realize what some people are going through. And, you know, some people are on this journey for, for many, many years. And I just think the more we speak out about it, and the more that's available to us. And I think we're starting to get there. There's more services coming. There's, you know, Tresillian services. There's some great midwives based out here. You know, we've even got in Dubbo, one of the ladies in town, she's called the Baby Loss Mentor, and she speaks about loss and, and miscarriage. So we we have some great services here, but I think the more we talk about this as an issue, I think the better. And your podcast is great for raising some of these issues, especially out on the land, you know, trying to get farmers to talk about sperm counts and that kind of thing is not something that's easily done. The more we, we normalize it and, and make it more a pub conversation than something, you know, scientific and icky, I think oh, the they're better. happy to talk about it when they're talking about the rams or whatever, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just not their own AI. <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah but it's uh but yeah our story had a beautiful outcome and and uh, you know I hope everyone who's listening to this who is going through their own journey has a lovely story to tell at the end of it as well and that's it for Ducks on the Pond thank you to both of our guests that was Jen McCutcheon and before that you heard from Divity Smith 
I'm so glad we kicked off our first episode of the season with this one, Jackie. Yes, me too. There are so many extra challenges women seeking fertility treatments have to face when you live so far from any services. And we had our first male guest, you know, Dim's dad. So shout out to Dim's dad. I mean, dads play actually a really important role, I think, when their daughters are going through fertility treatment. So shout out to any dad, I guess, that might be listening that is providing support to their daughter. I love that part in your interview. It like just made my heart smile and it made me laugh too. So yeah, shout out to Dimity's dad, our first male guest on Ducks in the Pond. It absolutely broke my rule of no men on the podcast, but it was just so good that I couldn't, I had to leave it in. It might have been because I think I interviewed Dim over lunch or something and she was at home and helping on the farms. So she was able to squeeze me in. And of course, we're going to get dad gate crush our party. Lots of near the kitchen table. <laughs> I love it. It's like when we were talking about periods and pelvic floors, my father-in-law walked in uh, at that point. Uh, and I, look, I cut him out of, of that episode, but I left Dim's dad in. And look, just an update as well, because I recorded that episode with Jen McCutcheon a few months ago. So she had her baby, a baby girl who's now three months old, and her name is Annie. So big congratulations to Jen and her family on the birth of their second daughter. Now, I know it might seem strange time of year to be coming back, you know, just before Christmas, but we have some really good holiday listening ahead for you. And we're also looking for episode sponsors. So we're all about supporting rural and regional businesses. So we keep our prices very reasonable. If you'd like a naming credit and a brief interview about what you offer, then please let us know. Plus, we would love to give you a shout out on our socials. And actually, speaking of socials, Kirsten, because this is really the first time we've caught up in a few months. So I've actually been seeing a lot of your socials popping up for the Rural Podcasting Co., which is now the producing company of Ducks on the Pond, which sounds super fancy, actually. What I'd really like you to tell me is I think there's two ladies, rural ladies, that have released new podcasts. Who are they and what do they do? Oh, okay. This is like a sponsoring interview. There's actually three now that have just launched, which is exciting. So yes, I help people launch their own podcast. And Bridget Johns of Be Simply Free, she has an awesome decluttering and organizational podcast. Really good. First one's about wardrobes. And Lisa Yates is another one. She's in WA and she has just released a podcast called Farm Office Toolbox, which is all about getting a system for your farm office. And she's got like a step-by-step program. So you listen to it and you do it with her. And she's got some resources that you can download from her show notes and her website. So it's an awesome podcast. And I've been working with BCG, Birchip Cropping Group, not not the international uh, (laughs) consulting firm, you know, Baby Steps. But Birchip Cropping Group is amazing. And they've got this new podcast about farming profitability, which is really exciting. And it's just been released as well. Like there's a whole heap of podcasts coming in the new year as well from women that I'm working with. I don't just work with women, I should say. I'm open to working with some rural and regional men. (laughs) It's just so good. And I think Ducks on the Pond is really about bringing topics that, you know, hopefully our listeners would be interested in. And I know then those three businesses have been working with the Rural Podcasting Co. With you backing them up, you know, why not give them a shout out? So, you know, add that to your list for your summer listening. Absolutely. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, Yes. So this episode is sponsored by Rural Podcasting Co. And Ducks on the Pond is brought to you by Rural Podcasting Co. as well. And we'll catch you soon. We'll catch you next time. See you then.
You have some juicy eggs in here, juicy follicles.